Have you ever had a bad dining experience at a restaurant? Uh, t tell me, uh, what, what would you do in this scenario? A good friend of mine who works at a high-end restaurant here in Louisville, she recently reached out to me and said, Aaron, you're never going to believe what happened at my job the other night. She then went on to tell me that a party of eight came in and sat at one of the large round tables in the restaurant. Well, during the meal, one of the men at the table decided to live stream the dinner on his Instagram account. Evidently, this is a thing, I guess. Well, it just so happened that that man's girlfriend watched the live stream. Yet when she did, she noticed that he was having dinner with another woman. Can you guess how that made her feel? Guess. Angry. So you know what she did? She grabbed her eight-year-old son and she drove as fast as she could to the restaurant. When she arrived, she said to her son, do you see them anywhere? To which she pointed and replied, yes, there they are. Then in a tone loud enough for everyone to hear, the woman yelled, party over, and stormed over to the table. But get this, she just didn't storm over to the table. No, with fire burning in her eyes, she began to throw plates, glasses, and silverware from other people's tables at the man, all while screaming at him. Now, can you imagine? Now, keep in mind, high-end restaurant, white linens on the table, okay? Well, as if throwing things at him wasn't enough, she then began to punch him as hard as she could. So you know what he did? He grabbed her by the neck and began to choke her. At this point, the server gets involved. He rushes over to try to break them up. He, he grabs the guy from behind, but in so doing, they both fall backwards on a large round table, breaking it. Water glasses, wine glasses, food, flies everywhere. Now tell me, if you were sitting at a nearby table, in that moment, how would you feel? Shocked? Surprised? Maybe a little afraid? But you know what you wouldn't feel? Bored. In fact, I am quite certain you'd have a laser-like focus on what's happening, right? I mean, is it not true that if someone comes into a room, any room, and starts making a ruckus, throwing items, turning over tables and such, that everyone would at least initially stop what they're doing and pay attention? 
this Easter morning, we're going to study a passage of Scripture where tables are being overturned. However, it's not in a restaurant, but it's in a temple. Indeed, in our passage this morning, we find someone very, very angry. However, it isn't an immature lover. No, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 2, Jesus is ticked off. This is not the precious moments, Jesus, with big teardrop eyes. No, this is a Jesus of intense fury. Yet amazingly enough, his forceful actions are not the most shocking feature of this passage. Now, to be sure, like that scene in the restaurant, Jesus' actions in this passage, they ought to grab your attention. Indeed, Jesus wants you to pay careful, careful attention to him in this text. And you know why? Because the most shocking detail recorded in this text is what Jesus says right after he overturns the tables. You see, friend, in John chapter 2, Jesus makes a claim about himself. Please hear me. A claim that forces each and every one in this room, myself included, to make a response. There, there is no way around it. So, so here's my goal this morning. I'm going to put all my cards on the table, okay? This morning, I want to invite you. I want to invite you to seriously consider, perhaps even just for the very first time, I want you to seriously consider the claim Jesus makes about himself as well as the implications Believing that claim would have in your life. That's my ask of you this morning. I'm going to ask you to consider the claim that Jesus makes about himself and the implications believing that claim would have in your life. I'm hoping you would consider that. So what is this claim of Jesus? Well, if you haven't already, turn with me to John chapter 2. That's page 887 in that paperback Bible in the aisle, in the Bible in the aisle in front of you. As you're turning there, let me give you the context. The Gospel of John is a historical eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. We know this is the case because it reads very, very different than ancient fiction. You see, unlike ancient fiction, which is very terse and never adds additional details that don't drive the plot, the Gospel of John does. Furthermore, the names of historical people are included in the Gospels to give validity to the accounts. And as we're about to see, our text this morning, it takes place during the time of the Passover. The Passover was the most important 
Jewish feast, for it commemorated God's dramatic deliverance of the Jews from Egypt the night of the Exodus. Those of you who are familiar with this, you know how the angel of death passed over the firstborn in the homes marked with the blood of the lamb. In other words, through the blood of the lamb, the firstborn would live. Yet perhaps most importantly, our passage takes place in the temple in Jerusalem. And what you have to understand is that for the Jewish people, the temple was the location where man could connect with God. The temple was the place where God chose to have his glory dwell. It was the place where sins could be forgiven and atonement could be made. The temple in many ways was the place where heaven and earth could connect. And it's in this temple, at the time of the Passover, that Jesus makes an extraordinary claim. So follow along with me in your copy of God's Word as I read John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. We read this. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Like, by what authority do you come in here and do this? And now listen to Jesus' response. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Amen and amen. This is God's word. In his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, author Tim Keller makes the astute observation that up until the 20th century, traditional cultures always believed that too high a view of yourself was the root cause of all the evil in the world. That is, they believed violence, abuse, cruelty, all kinds of misbehavior, those all stemmed from esteeming yourself too much. 
Yet in our modern Western culture, we have developed an utterly opposite cultural consensus, haven't we? I mean, just think about it. Our belief today is that people misbehave and underperform due to a low view of themselves, right? That is, we today believe that all our personal and societal problems are due to a lack of self-esteem. I mean, is it not true that the basis of contemporary education, the way we treat incarcerated, incarcerated prisoners, the, the foundation of most modern legislation, indeed, <laughs> the starting point for all modern counseling is that people have too low a view of themselves? I mean, this, this, <laughs> this thought is literally everywhere. For example, my wife just received this ad in the mail the other day. Tell me, what belief is underneath this headline? Is it not the belief that our greatest problem is, you know what, mom, you know what, woman, you don't think highly enough of yourself. You are everything. But is this really the solution? Several years ago, the New York Times ran an article entitled this, The Trouble with Self-Esteem. Here's the deal. It wasn't a groundbreaking article. No, all the author did was simply report what people have known for years. And you know what that was? It's that there is no evidence that low self-esteem is a big problem in our society today. The author cites several studies, all of which come to the same conclusion, and that is our greatest problem isn't a lack of self-esteem. No, our greatest problem is that we think too highly of ourselves. Now think about that for a moment. The very thing our modern culture repeatedly proclaims as the solution to our personal and societal problems is in fact the cause of all our problems. And like I said, man, it's everywhere. You parents with young kids, just think for a moment about the movies your children watch. What's the message of every plot? You're great and awesome just the way you are, and true joy is found in self-actualization. Pick any children's movie. You are awesome the way you are, and true joy is found in self-actualization. But friend, this is not the solution, but the problem. So what's the solution? Well, I believe we see it in the passage I just read. And you know what that is? It's forgetting yourself in the worship of something greater. The solution is not focusing more on ourselves, telling us how great we are. No, the solution is forgetting ourselves in the worship of something greater. And friend, that is precisely what Jesus Christ invites you to do this morning. 
Notice carefully what Jesus is doing here. Jesus walks into the temple in Jerusalem and he starts flipping over tables. He's driving people out in oxen with a whip. Think of how large oxen are, okay? Jesus is angry. And why is he angry? He tells us he's angry because the very place, the temple, the very place that was supposed to represent God's holy presence had instead turned into a prophet center. The temple had become a place filled with love of money rather than love for God. So with intense fury, Jesus cleans house. I mean, notice, there's no asking the money changers and the sellers, would, would, you, would you please leave now? Would you mind just maybe just t- taking it outside? No, he, the text says he drives them out. Shocked, the Jews, as you can imagine, they ask for a sign. They want to know, what right does Jesus have to do such things? And Jesus' answer could not be more shocking and profound. For what does he say there in verse 19? Have your eyes folded one more time. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. However, Jesus wasn't referring to the temple. He just cleaned out, was he? No, he was referring to his body. His body that would be crucified and raised back to life. And friend, here is the claim I want you, and I I implore you to seriously consider this morning. Do you see what Jesus is saying by standing in the temple and saying these words? This is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is claiming that he himself is the very presence of God. God in flesh who tabernacled among us. But not only that, as the true temple of God, Jesus is also claiming to be the only one who can bridge that gap between God and man. That is, by his words spoken in the temple, Jesus claims to fulfill every function the temple was intended to accomplish. You see, friend, the reason why there's a gap between God and man is due to our sin. Please hear me. What you have to understand is our fundamental problem isn't a lack of knowledge or spiritual enlightenment. No, our fundamental problem is sin. And, and we know this. No, no one here, you know, Duncan said this, you all look great, but no one, no one here thinks they're perfect. No. As our creator... We owe God our very lives. Yet we have not loved God like we ought. We have not served him like we ought. No, I know every person in this room, myself included, has done things and thought things we would be absolutely terrified if others found out. Everyone knows they're a sinner. That's not our problem. No, our problem is we just don't think our sin earns judgment. But friend, it does. And scripture makes this abundantly clear. Our sin earns us something, and that is eternal judgment from God, our creator, in hell. Uh, Earlier this year, a wealthy 20-year-old Chinese man named Hu 
was drag racing his friends over in China when he struck and killed a pedestrian. And although Hu received a three-year prison sentence, he never appeared in court, nor did he ever serve a day of his sentence. And you know why? Because he hired a body double to pay for his crime. True story. And who is not alone? In another case, the owner of a demolition company illegally demolished a house. So to avoid prison time, the owner hired a destitute man and promised to pay him $31 for each day he spent in jail. You see, according to the Associated Press, in China, the extremely wealthy can avoid prison terms, get this, by hiring body doubles. That's right. In fact, the practice is so common that there's even a term for it. You know what it's called? It's called substitute criminal. Friend, Jesus Christ is unlike any temple. In every other temple, you are required to bridge the gap between God and man. You are required to bring the sacrifice. That's why they're selling pigeons, sheep, and oxen. You pay to atone for your sins. However, as the true temple of God, get a hold of this, Jesus Christ is the priest, the altar, and the lamb who was slain to atone for your sins. The punishment you are owed for your sins was paid fully by Jesus Christ on the cross. This is what Jesus is getting at when he says that his body would be destroyed. You see, friend, you know who Jesus is? As the true temple, he is your substitute criminal. That is, on the cross, Jesus bore the full punishment you deserve for your sin. Notice, the, the Jews of that day, they were destroying the temple due to their sin in the temple. And friend, because of your sin, the true temple of God, Jesus Christ, was destroyed on the cross. However, unlike the Jews in Jesus' day, or the wealthy in China, please hear me, you don't have to pay for a substitute to atone for your sins. No, the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus is that he offers forgiveness freely to all who would trust him. Jesus paid it all, and he offers salvation for free. All that is required of you is faith. But furthermore, and this is what we celebrate this morning, unlike the physical temple in Jerusalem that was leveled by the Romans in AD 70, Jesus Christ, the true temple of God, came back to life three days later, defeating sin and death and proving himself to be who he claimed to be, the Son of God. Friend, this is the remarkable claim of Jesus. And here's the deal. You can't dismiss this. No one has ever said anything like this. Look, the founders of other religions, they built temples. Jesus says, I am the temple. This is why you can't dismiss this. 
You see, friend, I want to argue that this passage is, it, it presses you to make a decision. You know what that decision is? It's simply this, to worship Jesus exclusively. As the true temple of God, to worship Jesus Christ alone. Here's the deal. All of us in this room are worshiping something. We are. All of us are ascribing worth and value to some person or thing. We're living for something. And you know what we most often choose to live for? Ourselves. Is it not true, friend, that we esteem ourselves so highly, we think so highly of ourselves that we intentionally choose to live for our wants, wishes, and desires? I mean, have we not bought into the line, lie, hook, line, and sinker, that our greatest problem is a lack of self-esteem, so we need to get and give more focus to ourselves? Indeed, we need ads like the one my wife was sent to remind us, you are everything. You are great. Spoil yourself. Serve yourself. Satisfy your wants, your wishes. Yet, friend, please hear me. The whole testimony of Scripture in general and the focus of this passage in particular is that in Jesus Christ, we have something far more glorious and majestic and wonderful to live for than ourselves. In Jesus, we have God in flesh. In Jesus, we have the one who made atonement for our sins. And this passage is inviting you, calling you to forget yourself in the worship of the great one, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where true joy is found, not in esteeming ourselves highly, but in worshiping the one who is worthy of all our praise, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who defeated sin and death by his resurrection from the dead. And what I'm asking you to do this morning, friend, perhaps for the very first time in your life, is to consider, consider doing just that. That is to stop living for yourself, stop focusing on yourself, and instead see what you have in the true temple of God, Jesus Christ, and instead believe his claim and worship him exclusively. And as you worship him, forget about yourself. This means if you're tracking with me, this means you first own your sin and trust that Jesus is in fact the true temple of God, that his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead was sufficient to forgive you of your sins and to gain you entrance into heaven. Friend, please hear me. Salvation is not achieved. It's received. Salvation doesn't come to those who morally outperform others. No, it comes to those who admit, as Duncan mentioned, you cannot save yourself. Your sin is too great. Your righteousness is but filthy rags. No, salvation comes to those who throw themselves 
fully and completely on the person and work of Jesus Christ to save them. Not their own righteousness, but the righteousness of another. Friend, have you done that? To worship Jesus exclusively, to believe the claim, is to trust him for your salvation. But that's not all. I believe this passage highlights three additional actions you must take to worship Jesus exclusively. And here's the first I want to draw your attention to, and that is to worship Jesus exclusively, you first must relate to him properly. I want you to look again at verses 19 and 20. So Jesus has just turned over the tables, and he replies to their request. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But again, here's the focus, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. I want to show you from this passage how the first thing I think is we need to relate to him properly. Like several others in our church, I play in a men's ice hockey league. Now listen, no one in that league, no matter what, however high the level of division, no one in that league has ever played in the NHL. E even the best of players maybe played some college hockey, some junior hockey, or maybe a stint in some minor league hockey, okay? Look, we all have day jobs, and most of us have families. It's, this is why it's affectionately referred to as a beer league, okay? Well, three years ago, almost, almost to the day, three years ago, almost to the day, a 36-year-old accountant named Scott Foster, who also plays in a beer league, he was called in as an emergency goalie for the Chicago Blackhawks. And you know what? He crushed it. You see, at that time, the Blackhawks standout goalie, Corey Crawford, was injured. Then prior to the game, the Blackhawks' backup goalie got injured during warm-ups. That meant the Blackhawks had only one goalie left on their roster, rookie Colin Delia, who made his NHL debut that night. Well, just in case something were to happen to Colin, the Blackhawks called Foster to come to the game. They knew he played in a beer league and was somewhat good. And wouldn't you know it, at the start of the third period, with the Blackhawks up 6-2, to two, their goalie, Delia, started having bad cramps and needed to leave the game. So the Blackhawks put in Foster. And when they did, the crowd went nuts. <laughs> in fact, every time he made a save, the crowd cheered loudly. Get this. Foster faced seven shots that night, and he stopped everyone. At the end of the game, he was awarded the first star of the night. Here's a picture of him. Isn't that a great story? I mean, even if you're not a hockey fan, right? That's a pretty great story. But you know what? After the game, Foster didn't travel with the team to Denver for their next game. You know what? Nor did he join them for their game after that. 
In fact, do you know how much Foster got paid to play in that game? Nothing. You see, as heartwarming as the story might be, Foster was not a valued member of the team. He was there just in case. This is to say his relationship with the team was simply transactional. And the sad reality is, friend, we can often treat Jesus in the same way. What I mean is we can only come to him at times when we, we want to get something from him. It's a market approach. Like Foster and the Hawks, Jesus is not really valued. You kind of treat him like an emergency goalie. Jesus is there just in case. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's inappropriate to go to Jesus with your needs. No, you should. But friend, please hear me. What is inappropriate, based on the claim of who he says he is, what is inappropriate is to treat Jesus as a means to an end. Friend, Jesus' claim as being the true temple of God ought to radically reorient how we relate to him. This is, this is more than implied by his statement in verse 19. Instead of viewing or treating Jesus like a backup goalie or like some cosmic vending machine, we ought to relate to him as the glorious, all-satisfying Savior he truly is. That is... We ought not treat him as a means to an end, like he's the vehicle by which I can get what I really want. But no, as the one who is God in flesh, we ought to treat him as an end in and of himself so that if we have Jesus, we have everything. But then second, to worship Jesus is to rearrange your life for him. Look at verses 15 and 16. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Imagine this scenario with me for a moment, okay? Okay. Imagine you invite a guest into your home. Yet the moment he walks into your home, he starts rearranging your furniture. He moves your couches. He moves your tables. He, he, even, he goes on the walls. He starts taking down pictures, putting up his own pictures. Okay. Tell me, would that seem a little odd to you? Of course. Let's Tell me, would that seem odd to you? Of course. And you know why? Because it's only the owner of the home who has the authority to rearrange the furniture, right? Not the guest. Notice, Jesus walks into the temple, and to put it mildly, he starts rearranging the furniture. And you know why he has authority to do that? Because he is the final and true temple of God. Friend, when a person places their hope and confidence in the performance of Jesus 
to forgive them of their sins, when they invite Jesus to take up residence in their life, because of who Jesus is, please hear me, Jesus comes in not as a guest, but as the owner. And what it means to worship Jesus exclusively is that he can rearrange your life any way he wants. This means you submit to his commands concerning personal relationships. As an unmarried person, instead of just having sex with whoever you want to have sex with, you instead submit to his command to live a pure and righteous life. You obey what the scripture commands, namely that your life is not your own, but you've been bought with a price, so you glorify God in your body. Friend, does your life reflect this? This also means giving Jesus ownership of your money. No longer do you hoard your money to spend it on yourselves, but you steward your monies and give generously. To worship Christ exclusively is to allow him to rearrange every area of your life. In fact, can I ask, who's rearranging the furniture in your life right now? For those of you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ, or those of you who claim to be a Christian, does your life reflect the fact that God is the owner or you? And then finally, to worship Jesus exclusively means you revere his word. Look at the last verse there, verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And friend, this is what we celebrate today. Friend, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus proves, among other things, that God keeps his word, that he is faithful to his promises. I mean, notice, that's how the disciples responded to the resurrection, isn't it? They responded by believing his word in the scriptures. Friend, if Jesus is who he claimed to be, God in flesh, the true temple of God, then we ought to revere scripture. This means we don't stand in judgment over it, but it stands in judgment over us. For these are the very words of God himself. This Easter, friend, I pray and I hope that you would seriously consider this claim of Jesus. Indeed, my prayer for us as a church is that we would take our gaze off of ourselves and instead forget ourselves in the worship of something greater, the Lord Jesus Christ, the true temple of God. For friend, that is where true joy and lasting satisfaction is found. Amen? Let's pray.